pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. Hey guys, today I am talking with Ian Adamson. Ian is a former adventure racer. In fact, at one time he was said to be the world's toughest man. He has over 10 world championships from adventure racing, but he's also a producer, a forensic scientist, and an entrepreneur. And at the end of the interview, Ian gives his secret to overcoming any obstacle that stands in your way. Anyway, guys, this is a fascinating man with a lot to say. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. So, Ian, I really don't even know where to start with you. You've done more in your lifetime than I think it would take me at least 10 or more lifetimes to to accomplish. You're a world champion adventure racer. You've got, what, 10 world championships? Uh, uh, 11, I think. I, oh my not, gosh. Not quite sure. <laughs> I've got, yeah, in, in actual chance, I think it's something like 11, somewhere around there. How, and, but you've competed all over the world and you've done, you've been, you've been in every grueling situation, probably imaginable for anyone. What got you into this? How did you get started with adventure racing? Uh, <laughs> It was a process of um, elimination. So I, I got the, the uh, Olympic bug um, quite young. Not sure why, I think back in the day, back in the, I hate to say it, the 60s and 70s, um, when you saw the Olympics, it was kind of the big thing. And this, this was the case, probably because of the broadcast system. And when I was growing up, there were three TV channels where I lived. Um, and then right. <laughs> obviously that's changed a bit now, but <laughs> TV isn't really a thing anymore. Um, but back in the day you, you had limited options. And then, um, as an Australia, as a young person growing up in Australia, Australians are pretty, um, passionate about sport and uh, maybe it's because they're at the other end of the world and remote from everything, but have deep roots throughout, uh, um, Britain and these days, Asia. Uh, and close things to the US. So Australia Australia always followed sport and I was one of those, (laughs) but tried a lot of stuff. My grandfather was in soccer or football, um, as most people call it. He was the president of the Australian Soccer Football Federation. Uh, He had been a soccer international for Scotland. And so I was kind of grew up around it, but didn't really know much about it. I just knew he did it. And I really had no idea what it meant, um, except he would have stories about marathoners and cyclists and uh, other sporting people so it was sort of always there somewhere in the background um, consequently of course I played soccer from a very young age I think about six uh, six till 18 so I took it to a reasonably competent level in Australia including coaching and refing uh, but that was always that always overlapped with other stuff because I was outside all the time I was a typical kid making forts and trees and running around in the forest and playing in the tidal mud flats of Sydney Harbour all this kind of stuff and that was, I guess, as a young person, that's adventuring. Um, I do sort of dumb, crazy stuff too. Um, our next door neighbors had a little sailing dinghy called a Sabo, S-A-B-O-T. I think it's Dutch. Tiny little thing, eight feet long. Just tiny, tiny little boat. So as, as a tiny, tiny little person, <laughs> I would take this tiny little boat and I would sail for me pretty long distance out across Sydney Harbour, about 16 miles, I think it was, uh, out through... Um, the harbor out into the ocean. You know, at eight years old, I'd be kind of tinkering around in this little shell of a boat. At eight? Uh, yeah, <laughs> eight, young, pretty young. My parents were 
they just roll their eyes and say, hey, you know, just call us if you need help, um, which I did fairly frequently. <laughs> so I'd end up at some random beach somewhere and, hey, mom, can you come and get me? Um, uh, I, I wasn't, uh, it also led to other things. I'd break boats. I got run over by a, a yacht at one point with a friend of mine and smashed the boat up into bit, another boat and tell us bits and got picked up. Didn't tell my mom, just said, hey, come and pick me up. <laughs> she didn't realize that it was me and my friend and lots of bits of boat, not just the boat. Um, so that was kind of my habit. I was never really afraid to go out. I was actually, they were pretty encouraging. My folks were part of this. They were do whatever you want. I think at age 10, it was when you turn 10, you can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. Just let us know. Literally. It, obviously this, this day and age, that doesn't really happen much. Yeah. I'm still but, waiting for my parents to tell me that now. Yeah. <laughs> for back in the early, oh gosh, yeah. Early to mid seventies. That was a, a sort of an acceptable thing. Just go and do it. They were also, my parents were traveled a lot. They were academics. So they did uh, well, uh, research scientists my dad was a field geologist amongst other things and he traveled everywhere I mean he had work in Africa and Antarctica and he was away from for six months at a shop um, so we were no strangers to the idea of the world being a pretty big place I think when I was uh, between after 11th between 11th and 12th grades I took a few months off and traveled uh, in Europe um, same kind of deal some folks said yeah, here's a, here's a number in Paris if you get stuck in France. Here's one in Britain. Don't call unless there's good news. <laughs> no news is good news, basically, right. what it was. So, no, didn't call back. Uh, never had to. Uh, went back to, to high school, finished that. Then took another year out. I was trying to walk across um, walk across Asia to Europe, actually. Uh, it didn't happen. I got uh, started in Hong Kong, went to Macau, uh, through Tibet, back up into uh, towards Mongolia. That was 1986. So the uh, Chernobyl was doing this thing and they closed the border. I had my visa and my ticket and everything. So I was trying to get across Russia to um, Stalingrad at the time. Uh, that didn't happen. So I ended up going down through Pakistan, uh, tried to get over to Afghanistan. So I walked up to the uh, Khyber Pass, which is one of these high passes. That was a bad idea. Lots of, <laughs> there was a war going on. So hightailed it out of Pakistan, got quite sick actually, got airlifted to um, on a Pan Am flight in first class to Frankfurt of all places. I was, I was really keen to walk across uh, Iran or somewhere and get over to Europe that way, but that didn't happen because I was too sick. Uh, I have a picture of me in May, 1986, full head of hair. And then in June, 1986, no hair. And it stayed away since then. I, I don't know what the illness was, but it was not good. Oh man. <laughs> So what, what got in your mind where you decided I'm going to walk across Asia or and go, uh, what, what the well, cause is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I was adopted at two weeks old and my mother, my biological mother was from England. Her parents were from uh, somewhere in the Middle East. Her my maternal grandmother, Jewish from the Middle East somewhere. And my maternal grandfather, um, British, uh, uh, the Royal Air Force captain, pilot, apparently. Um, my, on my father's side, my father was a physician in Australia, uh, but from Singapore. And his parents were from China. My grandmother, on my, my paternal grandmother, was an air traffic controller at the Singapore airport, which at the time was the old British Air Force base. So I had this kind of desire. I knew my 
grandparents on my father's side come from China. So I decided, hey, I'll go across China, go and figure out, see what it's all about. Back in 86, it was pretty, um, it was very green, meaning that everyone wore green uniforms, like Mao uniforms, green or gray. So that was pretty much what was going on in China at the time. You could visit a few places. You could go to, I think, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong, maybe a couple other places, but you had to have very strict uh, travel requirements. I, being a young, crazy person, I completely ignored it. <laughs> Actually hid in the back of a mail truck. Um, I'd hitchhike on trains by just waiting till the train stopped and then jump in the back somewhere. Uh, and then just wind up in some random place in China, having no idea where it was. I jump out and of course at this point doing that you end up in places where you're not supposed to be and i look chinese enough that people wouldn't really question me they just thought i was dumb but they, they were probably right <laughs> and then at one point decided to go into tibet so jumped in the back of a mail truck hit under the mail bags and uh found my way across into tibet not legal at the time uh i think you could take tours but this was definitely not tours this was uh, walking and hitching uh, one of the two roads, there's a north and a south road in from Chengdu. So I think we took the, I don't remember which road, but it was pretty interesting. Um, did see, had a really interesting experience. There was a guy, I was in a village, swarmed with Chinese people. At the time they were quite short and I'm not a tall guy, I'm only 5'8". But back in the day, I guess it was a nutritional thing is that um, they were fairly short. So they'd be at my kind of shoulder height, head, so I'd have a head above them. I was walking to a village and I saw this huge crowd of people and then a tall like European guy. And I was saying, oh my gosh, there's a European guy over there. So we walked towards each other. It was a Canadian, it turned out, studying Chinese. Um, and he had the same experience. He said, this is really weird. I saw this huge crowd of people and some guy with his head over their shoulders. <laughs> and it was me. So we ended up chatting for a while. Um, and then one thing led to another. And uh, I actually ran into some adventure racing people that I came to know later. The Cranes, Adrian Crane and his brother, they were cycling. They were cycling across in Kashgar, which is far western China, or Kashi. And they were cycling into Tibet. I was walking across. We just kind of ran into each other. And they said, hey, you should check this place out. So when they closed the border into Russia, I hopped a train and went over to Kashgar. And that's how I ended up going into Pakistan. Because they just opened the, the, the um, oh gosh, it's the world's highest road. Uh, basically the road from China into Pakistan, the road is some ridiculously high, it's like 15,000 feet or something. Oh man. Uh, so I would, I was, I made it to the border. There's a big no man's land in basically high desert. I was kind of standing there scratching my head like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> because there was no way to get over to, I mean, there was a guy with a, like a rifle just kind of scratching his head going, you're an idiot. What are you doing here? But then, um, a National Geographic team in a like a Land Cruiser, old school Land Cruiser, um, or Range Rover. It was a Range Rover. He he was the French guy and his camera crew, and he was making the first crossing in over a hundred years into China. And he said, "Oh, no one's ever crossed from China into Pakistan." So I said, "Hey, can I just jump in with the driver who was from Pakistan?" He said, "Sure, yeah, go ahead." So I jumped in with the driver, and he drove me to a place called Gilgit. Um, so. Apparently, as far as I know, it was the first crossing from China to Pakistan in, back, in, back when they opened it up in 1986, May 1986. So you're like the real life Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, so I don't run as well. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I, it's funny because you've been called the Yoda of adventure racing. And I even read where you were named the toughest man on the planet. 
how how many races have you done do you know oh gosh uh, no i have, actually have no idea i you could thumbnail it i suppose um that's an interesting question because i started racing i really started racing uh, you know typical high school track and field and swing and that kind of stuff but that doesn't count i suppose because that's just high school as well after high school i got yeah it's kind of warm-up which was everything for me you, you asked the question how to get into adventure racing i guess this is the answer is that I was never actually particularly good at any one thing. Uh, good enough. I mean, I could get to national level, sometimes international level and something. But the more sports you add, so if you go from like running to do athlon, then, oh, now you're at two sports. You get a little bit better than just running or just swimming. And then you add a third, you add cycling. My father was quite a good cyclist, so I actually road cycled, competed at, as an age group at national level. Um, so I had cycling competency. And just adding sports, mate, they, means that less and less people can do it. That's all it is. It's not that you get any better. I don't think I'm any better than anyone else. I just have more stuff. <laughs> I don't know. You've got um, some interesting traits about you. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, the number of races. Gosh, um, I would I would race from college all the way through to when I became after until I retired. So that would be from about 1984 to 2007 so it's like 24 years of competition um every weekend maybe at, at some times like two or three times a weekend and during the week so I'd do like cycling time trials or swim meets or something canoe races and that would be normal uh in college i would have been almost every day there was a competition of something triathlon, swimming, cycling, canoeing, kayaking, yeah, on and on and on, surf lifesaving. Um, I just like to compete orienteering. So it would be, I would imagine, I think probably through until I left employment as a, like a, an office uh, jockey, uh, five times a week, wow. I was competing in something. And then as a professional, it completely changed from racing all the time, which was just for pleasure really to, oh, now I've got to eat. And then it went to, okay, now I've really got to drill down on it. And then it was a lot less racing. So probably once a week with a competition and then uh, once a month for something that paid the bills. So that was for about 12, 13 years. So you do the math. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of racing. More races than I have fingers and toes um, by, again, those 10 lifetimes. Uh, so, but you're also... Oh, well, before I get into this next question, what was your longest race? How many days? 11. Yeah, 11. The longest one was, I think there was a couple about that length. Um, the one that really sticks out is the Elf Authentic Adventure. Elf was actually the, the French petroleum company, uh, but they were sponsoring a thing called the Authentic Aventure, which was created by Gérard Fouzy, who also created the Regoires, which was the first um, internationally known expedition race and adventure racing in 1989. He sold that, I guess, uh, and left. And then he started a thing called the Elf, did a few of those. So we did one in the Philippines. Fantastic race. Oh, it's brutal though. <laughs> 11 days. Every day we'd do, we'd do basically 100 kilometers, so 60 miles a day. And it was, there were basically 100 kilometer legs. We would um, uh, paddle native boats between the islands. We'd go on foot. Uh, and then we would do, actually it was off-road inline skating of all crazy things. Um, so yeah, <laughs> off-road inline skating, these giant wheels, big inflatable wheels. Oh and uh, 
and then and the hiking in the jungle was the oh, it was brutal. The orienteering, the navigation was absolutely ferociously difficult uh, because the jungles are so thick. Um, there was a there was a kind of a separatist insurrection at the time. We had leaflets on the at the opening ceremonies. We had leaflets with crossed AK forty seven saying and things saying you are not safe. <laughs> <laughs> so the film make you feel did it, did it make you feel uh, safe <laughs> uh, no, it was exciting <laughs> and we ran across all sorts of military uh during the race and i mean both sides they didn't care about that they didn't give a hoot about what we were doing they didn't care they cared about each other so they were actually super friendly no matter who it was we ran into which was every now and again crazy jungle we were in we we're on an island called Leite, i think it is it was where the US had a, it was one of the giant uh, World War II battles with the Japanese, like the fleets were battling these gigantic um, Japanese battleships, the last battleships really that ever existed because they didn't do so well after the US Air Force bombed the hell out of them. Um, but they had a base, the US had a base there and we actually ended up on the base, but we didn't really know, we, we saw this thing on the maps and we couldn't really find it. We, so we were just w walking around. And it, then it finally dawned on us as we started to look around us that the shapes of the jungle were the shapes of things like tanks and planes. And the jungle had overtaken it and just completely overwhelmed this Air Force base huh. with hangars and kind of rummaged around in the, in the vines. You could find stuff. I mean, seriously, like full on stuff just sitting there. It was absolutely, it was really crazy. That, that's that's cool um so longest race was 11 days how how much suffering is involved in, oh enough in an adventure race? enough <laughs> enough enough to make it worthwhile <laughs> okay that because that's what i was wondering like how do you gear yourself to endure um all that you have to physically put yourself through and and it's not just physical because it's got to be mental uh just such a mental burden or just uh well that's yeah that's a good question um the first long multi-sport kind of race people do they find them quite difficult i had the same experience my first race was kind of a beer bet it was car crash curiosity i was watching this my friends were doing it and i was supporting as a, like a logistics group uh and i was watching what they were doing and they were olympians i mean these guys these guys and girls were fantastic athletes and i thought not a chance i'll ever do that looks way too hard and looks really painful and but you know but over a beer, there's usually this kind of, hey, at least I'll try one just to see what they're doing. Make me a bit of you know, support crew. Uh, well, I did try one and boy, did it hurt. Holy crap, it was so hard. Uh, it's only a two-day race. This thing called the Wild Trek, one of the early races that started in about 81 or 82. Um, and at the end of the race, I was thinking, there is no way I will ever do that again. That is misery. But then someone put a beer in my hand and I was, you know, typical, had a beer and pizza and was feed up chatting about the race and then i'd already signed up for the next year within a few hours just like that <laughs> so that's the start but the first time out the gate physically quite challenging or you know beyond anything you've ever experienced is usually how it goes over time when you develop the physical capabilities or the athletic ability then it becomes a sort of a mental game and you're sort of tinkering with the okay how much can i push and how much does it hurt and then and then given some more experience, it becomes less mental and it starts to become a bit emotional. It actually becomes, it's, I guess it's like, uh, I've talked to a lot of special forces and say it's a lot like war. The, in, the experiences are so intense 
that you um, you get addicted to it. It's a, it's a literal truth in my experience and anyone, all my teammates I've talked to, it's an addiction, not an, un, not an unhealthy one, I would imagine. Well, in some respects, but that's, <laughs> that's another story. Um, the, uh, and then after, once you kind of can manage all of that stuff, so you get, you can, you get very familiar and good at managing the physical, the mental, the emotional, then there's this, and I hesitate to say this because I'm pretty skeptical about this stuff, but spiritual, it's a transcendent experience. And if you can ever get there, that's sort of the goal. That becomes the thing that you end up chasing. It's this crazy experience, which is the only way I can explain, explain it. It's spiritual, but it's definitely not emotional, physical, or mental. It's way beyond that. That mm. takes an extraordinary um, amount of time and effort to develop. And if you can get to that level, then racing becomes kind of secondary to the, the end goal, but it makes it very easy. Uh, well, I shouldn't really say that. It's never easy. <laughs> um, and that can take decades. And keep in mind that my, my going into adventure racing, I already had 10 years of doing some pretty crazy stuff. Um, and in that development as an adventure athlete, it was also things like, all right, I just walked a thousand kilometers. That's can't be that hard. How, how many times can you do you guess that you've reached that spiritual state that you were talking about getting to? Oh, every race when I was a pro, I'd say. Yeah, every race. That was what the, that was part of the addiction. The income didn't hurt, but the addiction was definitely <laughs> the addiction was definitely there. Have you been since you retired, have you been able to to reach that state or find that that spot again or in other ways? Uh, I maybe a couple of times. Yeah. When I was, after I quit, uh, I didn't quit. I just, yeah, I just retired. I'd had enough. Um, top. I think it, when I retired, it was two technically it was 2007, but last, my last race was 2006 and that was my 11th win, uh, at the AR world champs, which was quite new at the time. Um, and I figured oh, it was also when Lance Armstrong had one, one 11 things. So, thought, hey, it's good enough. I feel like I could go on for a few years, but I think I'll quit now because then I, there's nowhere to go but down. You know, when you're right. on top of your game, there's nowhere to go but down. And we, we had good competition at the time. Fantastic teams were out there. Even some athletes who came back last year for the Eco Challenge were competing and they sort of unretired themselves. And I said, no way, I'm not unretiring myself, not a chance. <laughs> I'll watch them suffer and have fun. Um, and uh, I just lost your original question. It's a bit of a tangent. Oh, no, no. So, yeah, I was just wondering if you were able to ever reach that that spiritual state. Oh, yes. Yes. Your so, retirement. Right. So, yeah. So, after retiring, I did a couple of things that I couldn't do or chose not to do when I was racing. Uh, the Badwater Ultra Run. Um, Chris Kosterman had been asking if I could do it for years. And every year I'd say, yeah, I, you know, it looks really cool, but it doesn't pay anything. And I need to win. I, you know, I, I need the income. So, I'll only do things that pay. And then after retirement, Charlie Engel, quite a good friend of mine, uh, had unfortunately not been able to do it because of some convoluted and really astonishingly bad uh, work by uh, the US government on catching him for wire fraud when he was doing his documentary running across the Sahara. His loan officer had pushed a loan on him and then he had signed papers while he was in, in Africa and they grabbed him off the plane and said, wire fraud. <laughs> he was like oh, the man. only guy in the entire US when the housing system collapsed that got nailed for something he didn't do. 
Wizard's wow. loan officer. Anyway, so he couldn't do the run and he had asked me to do it because he was going to do a documentary. So we, we were going to do the run uh, for his documentary. He didn't do it. And I just said, oh, sure, I'll do it anyway. Sounds like fun. So did the bad water. Uh, and it was. It was really, really fun. It was a hot year. Uh, but it was so easy. Oh, that's, just, that's, that's, a, that's not a very nice thing to say. On a relative basis, it was logistically a lot simpler running with a giant support crew than being self-contained for weeks with nothing. So of course, in that context, it's relatively easy. From a running perspective, it's really hard because it's like I know, 18, 19,000 feet of elevation gain across three mountain ranges from having <laughs> a crazy race. Um, so yeah, in doing that, yeah, for sure. And that's a, it's about 30 hours or 28 hours or something for me. With the all the adventure races you've done, you were with team teammates. Um, did, do you find that it has made you understand understand people better or made you a better people person or like there's got to be some kind of like psychological advantage to working with people through such harsh conditions for in, in, in coming together to achieve a, a goal yeah it does it, it exposes it amplifies people's proclivities you know their, their natural their nature um, so we'd see all sorts of it reveals people's core really fast um some people can hide stuff for a while but never for good it just comes out eventually so we over the over our careers there was we pretty much had a squad and it was a big kind of free-flowing dynamic thing we raced in the u.s um as a, a, a limited liability corporation uh we called it elite adventure team and there were three owners it was me mike close and mike tobin uh, those guys have won multiple world championships in sports, uh, solo sports. So they're capable athletes. We ran this thing as a squad. So we'd have, people didn't really know this, but we'd have two or three teams in any given race. And it was rare that we didn't get first, second, and third, or first, second, or third, or something like this. And we just different names with various, different name teams with various people coming in and out. A lot of Kiwis, uh, a lot of Aussies. Uh, we would have, it could be something like, oh, we started as, Eco Internet and then Rebox. We have various names, Rebox, Salmon, Nike for a really long time. Nike, Nike ACG, Nike uh, Beaver Creek, Vale. We had all these different names that we'd race under uh, with various combinations of people. And the, the squad, for the most part, stuck together. It, it had its early um, genesis from Kiwis. Actually, there was this transcontinent, trans-Tasman uh, competition between Kiwis and Aussies in the 80s. And we'd race against each other all. And then ultimately in the international scene, we sort of came together. And by the 90s, it was all the same people who used to compete. And then we just, as it went from sort of solo or pair racing to team racing in the true sense, like three or four people together. Uh, so we all came together. And uh, over the probably 20 years, um, that squad uh, morphed and changed and became many things. Um, including the athletes today. In fact, a couple of them, quite a few of them, and, and sometimes their kids now uh, did quite well the Eco Challenge. Well, actually all in the top like five, wow. first, second, third, fourth, fifth kind of thing. So they're all there somewhere. This early, early Genesis. It's really interesting. There's only really one person I didn't race with. Well, actually that's not quite true. For the most part, I did not race with Nathan Fave. We raced against him a lot um, over the years. And... Uh, in one race in the Primal Quest in 2000, and 
five, I'm going to say, four or five. Uh, it was a unfortunate fatality in that race, but we actually joined with their team. I think it was Seagate at the time. I think they're still Seagate. Seagate and Nike. And we actually got in each other's boats. So I raced with Christina in her boat and then Michael raced with, you know, so I think Nathan raced with Danelle and we just kind of jumped it when we caught, formed one big team to go to the finish. So that was, that's the only time I actually raced with Nathan. The rest of the time we raced against each other. Um, <clears throat> but all the other, almost everyone else in the teams, you'll see were kind of came in and out. Uh, I raced with Richard Usher in the World Champs in 2006. Uh, he went on to a very good career. He was an Olympian too. Um, mm -hmm. And then, uh, gosh, uh, Chris Fawn raced with our team in the raid and won. That was his first big win. I think he's still racing. He was on the winning team in Eco Challenge last year with Nathan. Uh, so interesting group of people. Uh, almost overwhelmingly fantastic. Uh, good friends with pretty much everyone from the early, from the 80s to this day. That's awesome. So you're retired, but you're also working on projects like you're actually trying to get adventure racing into the Olympics. Is that right? Uh, obstacle sports would be more obstacle, accurate. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So I met Joe DeSena who owns started Spartan race in, I'm going to say late nineties, uh, early two thousands. He'd done the eco challenge. Um, he was in a, he had done very well on wall street and had a, basically a corporate, um, incentive travel sort of program company ish don't know exactly what it was. Uh, he wanted to put on an event, an adventure race, uh, for which included his clients, team, teams of clients. And it was Expedition BVI in 2001, uh, right after 9-11. So it was a really interesting time. We uh, ended up, so I was tapped to help basically direct, put on the court, build the course and direct the race um, with another uh, colleague of ours, Don Mann, Navy SEAL. We uh, we put this thing on and it was super fun. Um, I have a sailing background, so I rent, we rented uh, 50 foot yachts for every team, and they would sail around. Did some regatta starts, actually yacht racing, sail around the BVI, end up in really nice places, and they'd do fun adventures: mountain biking and diving and swimming and kayaking and <laughs> sailing and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that uh, that was part of what I had started doing early on, which was having an exit strategy. So understanding or having the perception that racing professionally was a very short career and the chances of doing it well was pretty minimal. I figured that going into it after leaving full-time employment, I became a contractor as a biomedical engineering and then did that so I could become, train enough to become a professional athlete successfully made the transition and then thought, oh shit, excuse me, I'd better have an exit strategy because this isn't going to last very long. So within a few years, by 99, I was, um, so I went full-time adventure racing in 90, 98. 99 started my exit strategy, which was to direct and produce events. So I started as a contractor to IMG in 1999 uh, and then started working on things like the Outdoor Quest, which at the time was the wealthiest adventure race, went for eight TV seasons, um, lots and lots and lots of money, uh, even by today's standards. Like, I think, well, yeah, huge amount, even by today's standards uh, in absolute terms. So it was then directing races and then started producing races and then started working with the television producers and kind of made the slide. 
and by 2001 was pretty much had made the uh, ability to exit uh, real uh, to be just an event pro and television producer but <laughs> but I didn't I didn't retire I just kept going for another 10 years so even though I'd made the strategy so then I was having dual lives I was doing event television production and racing um, which was interesting because it gave me really good insight into why event and TV show competitions are the way they are, but also how to do them better. And also, so you actually played in well to being a professional because as a professional, a professional is someone who truly uh, makes a, a living and does it ethically and morally correctly. Um, doing that's hard. You can be the best athlete, doesn't make you a good professional. And you can be a spectacular professional, even if you're not the best athlete. So I kind of walked the line right down the middle of pretty good and good enough. Good enough. I like it. That is. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. This is really fascinating to me. You are an expert witness in sports and recreation, specializing in zip lines, obstacle courses, obstacle races, and adventure sport events. In forensics, what is what is what, do you, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it's, so i work for a company called robson forensic and where it's a company of expert witnesses expert witnesses are people who have a very unusual um background and understanding of something quite specific typically so a huge uh, bank of knowledge and experience and typically expert witnesses good ones are quite old uh, because it just takes that long to understand what's going on and i'm relatively old uh, i guess if you say closer to 60 than 50, put it that way. <laughs> As a quite an old person, um, I have accumulated a very strange and unusual tool set, which includes understanding deep knowledge of um, adventure sports uh, and aerial adventure courses. Another strange thing that I did partly because of events and climbing, I have a bit of a climbing background. Um, my father and my brother, actually, my brother's a very good climber. Uh, um, that led to some of the things that we'd start putting in in races in tv show race competitions including ropes courses zip lines and all these kind of weird things that subsequently have become uh, actual things and now the zipline parks it used to be it was actually it was a climbing thing was to get between stuff tyrolean traverses or tyrolean traverses they became zip lines when you start to go fast um, then they became a kind of a, a thing in aerial adventure courses originally for corporate training well we were making these things making very big very fast ones uh and we learned a lot <laughs> doing this in races we had one in china actually in 90 in 2000 i think started on the top of a very very high bridge over the yangtze river up near the foothills of tibet and we had them go down this immense rope um slide down this immense rope with a little pulley into a river into the river sort of downstream and then angle off into the side but they were going so fast they were melting the uh the pulleys and started melting the rope wow. <laughs> we started learning a lot with these things because no one was really doing these no one that i know i'd never even heard of them we just kind of made them up like hey let's go off this 400 foot high bridge and thousand feet down the river and see what happens fair of worst comes to worst i'll fall in the water which is what they did um so we were doing these things and that became then we're became a lot more and then I started going oh shit I better engineer this because I was an engineer so I started engineering them then a friend of mine ah oh, such a long story sorry about the length of it um, okay. my wife for 20 some years was a sideline reporter for the professional bull riders tour yeah 
Wow. She went to school with a guy called Randy Bernard, who was the CEO. Uh, at one of, and I used to work every now and again at the, on the shows as you know, something in the TV world. Um, at one point, Randy said, oh, let's do an opening thing. They'd have opening stuff like you know, Blue Man Group or people doing tricks on motorbikes and said, hey, let's do a zip line. So I went out to Vegas and uh, built a zip line from the top of the Thomas and Mack Center down into the arena. And it was fast. I mean, you're dropping out of the sky, basically. And the idea was to have the National Guard do it. So a friend of mine, Billy Madison and I, who Billy and I were, Billy's the, his an adventure racer on Nika Challenge 98, you know, foreman at the Vail Ski Patrol, owns a rafting company, good climber. I said, hey, Billy, come out. We're going to do this really fun zip line thing for the, the PBR World Finals in Las Vegas. And he said, that sounds great. So out we went, we took our ropes and we built this thing and we were testing it out and we were like falling out of the ceiling and like screaming across the arena in clouds of dust. And the National Guard is standing there and the guy saying, oh, we can't do that. That's way too dangerous. And so hang on a minute, we haven't finished it yet. <laughs> so it never actually happened. Uh, we did all the setup, um, but they didn't put it in the show. They said, oh, it's too dangerous. National Guard can't do that. I think, hang on a second, you're the National Guard. You're supposed to be saving us. Anyway, but Randy's uncle um, owns a winery up in central coast of California, Santa Margarita uh, Ranch. He had just done a, a, a zip line in Costa Rica and said, was talking to Randy and said, hey, you know, I really want to put zip lines on my winery. And Randy said, oh, I know a guy who does that, which I didn't. But he said, hey, Ian, you should talk to Carl. Happens to be right near where we live in California, in San Luis Obispo. So I met Carl and Carl and I went out and I started looking at the topography and we, we, we thought, oh, well, let's, we'll put a zip line over here. So I, you know, I basically looked at what was possible. He wants something big. So we built a 1500 foot zip line across the valley uh, in the winery, um, basically in the, in the, uh, like along the San Andreas fault, where it's really hilly and the winery. Uh, so we, we, I engineered it, designed it. And then Carl and I went out with like a D nine bulldozer and a bunch of heavy equipment and built it, engineered it though, like with big steel posts and all sort of stuff. Um, and one thing led to another. And then today, I think it's the biggest, uh, zip line park in maybe in the U S because it's over now. 12, 13 years, it's got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we built a really big one, uh, half a mile long. And that's a big line. Uh, yes. In case you didn't know, it's like 3,000 feet long. In right. events. And you get it going really far. You can get 60 miles an hour if you really go at it. You probably get 65 miles an hour, um, which is quite fast. So uh, that's that became, they shut down zip lines in California because there was quite a few fatalities. Oh. Um, we weren't shut down though. There was a weird thing. Carl ran into what's called a QZ inspector. basically people that examines um, amusement parks for the state of California. It just kind of ran into it. This guy who lived in San Luis and he said, Hey, we're doing this over here. I know they shut everything down. Maybe you can take a look. So this guy came over because we'd engineered it. I mean, we're talking gigantic, like 12 inch I beams stuck in tons of concrete and massive cables and, I wasn't going to let anything happen to the structures. I thought, well, this is, this is going to be bomb-proof. And it was. And he looked at it and went, oh, never seen a zip line like that before. Perhaps you, we need to. And they started writing standards. So one thing led to another. It was kind of the formation of the basis for uh, um, approval of zip lines in California. They never shut us down uh, because we were okay. Everyone else got shut down. 
Um, so they were the last man standing. I was sitting in a standards meeting for obstacle course racing of all things, because we're doing international standards for uh, obstacle events. And uh, sitting next to me was a woman who said, wow, you really got an interesting background. Would you be interested in doing expert witness work? And I said, what's that? <laughs> she goes, yeah, you should call this number. So I called the number and it was Robson Forensic People. And then one thing led to another. And then I came on board as uh, an expert for zip lines. And then that became aerial adventure courses. And then that became other stuff. And this keeps getting more and more stuff. But that was the call I was on earlier was a, a practice group for some of that stuff, which is fascinating. And so what we do, this is a long, long story to tell you what expert witness is. is. Uh, in a legal case, uh, let's say someone is on a zip line. Let's say they're on a backyard zip line and they get hurt and they go, oh, that's no good. That was, that was bad. I think I'm going to sue the owner of the house for the backline zip. It's typically not domestic or residential, but something like this. And then they scratch their heads and they go to a law firm. The law firm goes, oh, sure, we know nothing about zip lines. What on, how on earth are we going to do this? And they go on the internet and they search and they find someone who knows about zip lines. Um, and that it has to be a very unusual skill set. And that mine happens to be quite unusual. Uh, mechanical engineer, sports medicine, um, uh, event production, uh, TV show production, and uh, competition. And that set of, of uh, skill sets or experience is quite useful for being an expert. So I would say, well, for sure, in that space, I'm an expert because I know quite a lot about stuff. <laughs> Yes, you do. That is awesome. Um, with all of your accomplishments, the races you've done, the suffering you've put yourself through, um, all the championships, and then the business acumen that you have, what would you say is our people? What is a person's biggest obstacle to reaching success or whatever that might be for them or their goals? <laughs> Stating a goal is a good start. You'll hear people say, oh, I could never do that. It's like, hey, we ever thought about doing the Ironman? And they go, oh, I could never do that. Well, I'm pretty sure they'll fulfill that goal. So they just stated a goal. Like, I could never do that is a great goal. And it's an easy one to fulfill. Um, you can do the opposite. And you see, I've seen it quite a lot. I've seen people who objectively may not um, satisfy a criteria to have great success at something, but they're so determined uh, that they do. They just don't, they don't see a limitation. That's a good way to achieving things. And it always takes time. And people will say, oh, you had such a great success at adventure racing from the start. I said, well, no, not really. I mean, the start that you know was not the start that I know. The start that you know was 20 years after I started. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a kind of contextual thing. And you'll see it with a lot of athletes is they go, oh, you were, you know, must be so talented and genetically gifted. And for the most part, I don't think that's true. I think it's grit and determination. Yes. You see it a lot in a lot of sports and I've seen it in great detail and up close, uh, grit counts for a huge amount. So, and that's, that's life itself. Grit is how you get things done. You keep saying I've got done so much stuff. Well, I suppose, but it takes about 10 years. If you really work at something, it takes about 10 years to optimize it. Malcolm Gladwell's book talks about in terms of 10,000 hours. For most people, if you spend four hours a day, every day doing something, it's like 10 years will take you to get there. Um, if you do a lot more, of course, it's a lot quicker. So you can halve that time. You could get really good at something, right? Truly world-class at something in five years if you just bury yourself. 
Ian, thank you so much for being on. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate you sharing your story with me and giving me your time. Oh, of course. My pleasure. I, you know, like, like they say, the older I get, the better I was. And I am definitely getting better. You are. Yes, you're on fire. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend.